Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It's always a little bit troubling when you hear the scripture read and you find yourself envying somebody in the Bible. I mean, the Word of God does many things. It convicts, it forgives, it encourages, it comforts, it challenges, but we don't really like to think of it as provoking us to envy. And yet that's what happens for me when I hear this text, the story about Mary and Martha and Jesus, and I find myself envying Mary. What I envy is the simplicity. She sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to his teaching. Do you notice how simple that is? She doesn't have any commentary of rabbinical literature, Hillel and Shammai, in order to interpret the rabbi's teaching. She doesn't have logos running on her computer in order to understand what he's being said. She doesn't even have Jim Veltz's, what does this mean, so she can assume the role of the implied reader and understand everything. (laughs) No, she just sits at his feet and listens. When was the last time you just listened to Jesus? I think that sometimes going to the seminary can make it hard to listen to God's Word, can take the joy out of it. You know, they've done some studies, some research of the spiritual lives of seminarians, and although they have done many different kinds of research, there's one conclusion that keeps coming back, and that is that when seminarians enter the seminary, their spiritual life tanks, it plummets, the bottom falls out of everything. Now, it it seems odd. That's not what you would expect to happen. I mean, after all, you're going to a seminary. You're gathering together in a community of Christians. You're able to worship every day, receive the Lord's Supper, private confession and absolution. You can care for one another, pray for one another. You can engage in acts of service for people here on campus, out in the world, and that's just outside the classroom. You get inside the classroom, and you can read the Word of God in the original languages and plumb the depths of its complexity and meaning. You would think that your spiritual life would flourish, and yet the surveys say that it falls apart. And I think I understand why. Because once you start reading the Scripture here, you recognize how little you know, and you stop reading. Something else is going on in your head. It's kind of like worship. Do you remember before you came to seminary when you used to worship? You went to church? You sang hymns, you read the scriptures, you listened to the sermon, you took the Lord's Supper, and and it was great, and God worked through that. But now, now when you go to worship, there's this little voice that's always running through your head as you're analyzing everything that's going on. You're singing the hymn, but you're not just singing the hymn, you're analyzing the hymn. Do these words fit with the prayer and the sermon? Does it all hold together? You're listening to the sermon, but you're not listening to the sermon. Is he basing it on scriptures? Is he applying it to the life? Is he properly distinguishing law and gospel? You're watching the actions of the service, where people are bowing and where they're crossing and why they're crossing, and all of this is going on, and it makes it hard 
hard just to worship. I think something similar goes on with reading the Scriptures. Remember what it was like before you came to the seminary when you read the Bible? You may not have been that concerned about the translation. You just opened the Bible and read. And now, with just a little bit of Greek and a little bit of hermeneutics, you're not sure you should be reading that English translation. And yet you, you can't yet read the Greek text. So what do you do? Right? I had a, a student come into my office. He wanted to talk to me about a, a text he was going to preach on. <laughs> and I said, well, why don't we read the text? So he, he goes into his book bag. He unzips this thing, and all the stuff falls out on the floor. <laughs> and he starts picking it up. And I notice that there on the floor is this dog-eared, dilapidated, well-worn copy of Eugene Peterson's The Message. Not even a translation, it's a paraphrase, right? And he sees me see it. <laughs> and he, he sheepishly shoves it in his book bag and he pulls out this pristine, beautiful, hardly used Greek New Testament. And because I knew him well and we could joke, I, I said, are you sure you don't want to use the message? <laughs> and he said, no, we're going to try this. <laughs> But then, as if he had to give me some excuse, he said, you know, I got that before I knew Christ. A friend gave it to me, and I used to read it all the time. I took it with me to the shop, and when I was on break, I was always reading the Bible. That's how I came to know Jesus. And I said, and now? And then he looked away. And he said, not so much anymore. The silence, the sadness was telling me something, but I didn't pursue it. But here he sat with the message in one hand, just a paraphrase that he had read and God had worked through to bring him to the place, and the, the Greek New Testament on the other hand, that, that when he opened it, he could hardly read. And what do you do, right? Well, some people just stop reading. Now, now I, I'm, what I'm saying has a little bit of nuance to it, and I see Tom Egger sitting back there, so I need to clarify this for the exegetes, and Dave Lewis too, yeah? I'm, I'm not speaking against exegetical theology. I am not devaluing exegetical theology. Exegetical theology is wonderful. It will open your eyes to the complexities and the depth of the meaning in these scriptures as God speaks through them to shape us as his creatures. But what I am saying is that sometimes the great is the enemy of the good. You have great exegetical professors here. I have seen what they can do. It is amazing as they can take a passage and delve into it and dive down and really take it apart and open it up to mean things you had never conceived before. Wonderful. But then when you leave the classroom and go back to your room and you try it, it just disappears in thin air. And the question is, what do you do? 
because of your limited understanding. I know what happens to me sometimes. Sometimes I just stop reading. I, I read the Bible in the morning as a devotion before I come here, and, and I know the great resources we have here. When I'm reading Matthew, if I have a question, I can just come here and I can see Jeff Gibbs, talk to him after chapel. He doesn't even need to pull out the Greek New Testament. He's got it all up here. He can just give me an answer. When, I, when I'm reading the Psalms, if I come across a troubling verse, I can walk down the hall. Jim, uh, Tim Seleska's office door is always open if I have a question about the Psalms. When I'm reading Obadiah, if I'm reading Obadiah, <laughs> I can go to Paul Robbie and he can tell me why I should be reading Obadiah, right? All of these great resources, but I don't think they would appreciate it if I called them at 6.30 in the morning, right? And so I'm reading and I come across something and I don't understand and I, I just set it aside because of my lack of understanding. And that's what makes this text so beautiful. There is a text here. <laughs> what makes it so beautiful. Because Jesus reveals to us that he is Lord of people with limited understanding. And he has set aside a portion that will not be taken away from them. What Mary does is simple, but what Mary does is bold. From everything I've read, this is very shocking in that cultural setting for a woman to take the position of a disciple. She's not reclining at table with Jesus. She's sitting at his feet, taking the position of a disciple to learn from the rabbi. And I doubt that the things in her culture would have prepared her for understanding. So someone with limited understanding sitting there at Jesus' feet, that is bold in terms of what she's doing, and it's bold in terms of when she does it. Martha and Mary have invited Jesus into their home. This is a time for hospitality. This is a time to be serving Jesus. This is a time to be showing the love of the neighbor, and Martha is preparing the food. Martha is waiting to serve Jesus, and yet Jesus ironically does something instead. Because Jesus, as he tells us in Luke, he did not come to be served. He came to serve. And while Martha is preparing food, Jesus is already laying something down on the table. And while Martha's trying to put words in his mouth, tell my sister to help me, Jesus already has a word that he's giving to Mary, that he's giving to Martha, that he's giving to you, revealing that Mary has the choicest portion, the main dish, and what she is eating will not be taken away from her. Jesus is Lord of those who have a limited understanding. And I think it's actually instructive that this story falls where it does in the Gospel of Luke. Everybody comments about the Good Samaritan right before it. I'm, I'm saying take a bigger picture. <laughs> This story falls in the section of Luke that has the majority of the teachings of Jesus. Ever since he sets his face toward Jerusalem, he is constantly teaching. Only five miracles in ten chapters, but over 16 parables. He's constantly talking with people on the street, in the synagogue, at the table, with his disciples, answering questions about the kingdom. When will the kingdom come? How will the kingdom come? Will only a few be saved? Answering questions about care for people. Lord, teach me how to pray. Lord, increase my faith. Answering questions about contemporary issues. What about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices? Tell my brother to share his inheritance with me. 
Herod is out to kill you. Again and again, Jesus is teaching. That is his mission as the prophet of God, to bring the saving word of God to those who have limited understanding. And when he is nailed to the cross, that mission is fulfilled as he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when he rises, where is the first place that you see Jesus? Not at the tomb, not in Luke. First place is on the road to Emmaus with disciples who don't have a clue. And he's opening the scriptures and sitting at table, and they are feasting on his word. Jesus is Lord of those who have limited understanding. And he died and he rose that this portion might not be taken away from you. So there's no reason for us to envy Mary this morning, because what Jesus does for her, he does for you. He gives you that portion, and with your limited understanding, he uses it in your life. He does it in the Gospel of Luke. He sends out 72 in mission right before this text, 72 in mission, and they do not know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in the early church, he takes Augustine, Augustine who does not know Hebrew, sorry Tom, Augustine, who does not know Hebrew, his Greek is abysmal, as one scholar generously says, if Augustine had a page of Greek and a Latin translation, he could probably muddle through. Does not know Hebrew, Greek is abysmal, and he's working with a Latin translation, and yet what does God do? Making him a father of the church. And how about closer to home? How about you? When you were reading the scriptures before you cared about translations, what did God do? Well, he brought you here to this place. And so when you sit there with a translation in one hand and the Greek in the other, and you're not able to read the Greek and you're embarrassed to read the translation, what do you do, huh? Do you just wait? Do you wait till the perfect commentary comes out? Do you wait for years and years until you finally get all of the skills so you can translate the Greek and sight read it? Or maybe, maybe you should just be bold. It's really simple. Just take an English translation and sit at the feet of Jesus and read. For now, for this day, for this place in your life, that is enough. Jesus is Lord of us who have limited understanding. And he's died and he's risen that this portion might never be taken away from you. Amen.